If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about data, talking about playtest data, talking about all the things you should be thinking about, the questions you need to be asking, the, the ways to analyze the information that you're bringing in during your playtest sessions. Got a little BGDL community spotlight episode talking to a member of the BGDL community, Mr. Robert Longton. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, man. Glad to have you here. The uh, The Google form that you submitted with your idea for one of these spotlight episodes was super intriguing. You had some really interesting ideas and, and things that you're you're doing with playtest data and whatnot. And I was like, man, that's that's good stuff. I think that's pretty thought provoking. I think some people out there in the community would benefit from your ideas. I'm really excited to have you on the show and, and dive into that in just a second. But before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So um, my name is Robert Longton. I am um, a game designer. Uh, I'm also a mathematician and a data analyst. And um, you may or may not think all those things go hand in hand, but uh, a lot of the same basic premises of how you come to make decisions and how you think about decision-making, all of that sort of overlaps. So I've just sort of been um, a hobby uh, fanatic of board games and math for uh, at least a couple decades at this point. And they just sort of wove together. And eventually I kind of found myself uh, working on both of them. <laughs> yeah, very cool. And I can see a lot of just direct links between your day job of dealing with numbers, dealing with data and, and analyzing and looking at it right over into the game design space. Maybe not necessarily from like artsy, creative, you know, I'm going to come up with a crazy theme, but definitely from the inner workings, the, the way the mechanisms go together, the way the balancing works and all the math that kind of is the, the infrastructure or the substructure or the scaffolding for how a lot of games work. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense how you would cross that right over. And it also makes you a great person to talk to when it comes to analyzing playtest data. And so let's just jump right into that. First of all, how how do you do it? What, what's your opinion? What are your ideas as far as how I should be taking in the data from my playtest sessions? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, obviously, one of the first things people want to talk about is medium. Should I use uh, pieces of paper? Should I have a web form? Um, and there's not exactly a good answer for that. Um, there's sort of a, a plethora of answers depending on your need, but I'd say anything that gets you data is worth pursuing. So if you have a very complicated game, if you have a very complicated use, uh, player experience, those are things that maybe you should take on to a web form where you can ask more complicated questions, um, possibly have 
uh, paths between questions and answers. If a user says, uh, yes, I did experience something during my game, then you can take it to another question that'll ask them to elaborate. Um, if you have a, uh, a game that doesn't have that type of level of need, um, then maybe a paper form would be perfectly fine too. And something to keep in mind too is not just the format, it's also where you play test and who you're play testing with. If you don't know these people and you're driving you know, an hour away to some sort of local gaming meetup, uh, you're probably going to want to bring paper because you can't necessarily um, count on everyone there to have internet access. Uh, you can't necessarily count on them to, you know, play and then go home and dutifully go online and uh, submit your form. So if you bring paper with you, sometimes that's going to be an easier route just because people are more likely to respond and you're going to get that feedback right away. Yeah, absolutely. And so what are some of the questions you recommend I ask right after or during, maybe, maybe at the beginning, maybe in the middle, at the end? Actually, let's talk about that. Let's go, let's go back. Before I'm asking questions, when am I asking questions? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would say that it's usually a good idea to gather a little bit of surface level information at the beginning. And the reason for that is because you want to know um, who you're dealing with and you want to have an idea of what their uh, their experiences with games before you introduce them to your game, right? If you teach someone a game, they're going to have a certain background and they're going to have a certain understanding about games. And if it doesn't match with your game, you need to have that ready so that you can explain your game to them. So I would start right there. I would find out a little about who they are and what they know about games and use that experience to start teaching your game. Maybe the style of your game isn't something they've ever done before. Have they never played a deck builder, for example? Then you got to explain that entire concept to them and how that works. Um, so there's a little bit of data that definitely needs to be gathered right in the beginning. And what I think is missed is when you gather that data, a lot of people don't think to write that down immediately. A lot of people will, they will ask that question. They will think to do it, but they're thinking in terms of, here's what I have to do in order to explain the game and not thinking I need to take this information home with me and build it into my analysis. So this is a player who has no experience with my style of game. I need to factor that into what my data says about their experience. So I would definitely be capturing all the data I can whenever you ask very specific questions. You need to capture that data. You need to write it down or enter it into an Excel file, whatever you do. You need to make sure that you're capturing it. So I would definitely start at the beginning and then I wouldn't introduce any data in the middle of the gaming experience because that can be a hindrance. Um, it could definitely detract from the board game experience. But at the end is when you're really going to capture all your critical information. If they had a good or a bad experience, that's the first thing that they're going to be willing to tell you. That should be your first question. Um, how was your experience? And then you can break that down into multiple different sorts of questions that elaborate um, more into what that experience was and maybe the specific data you want to capture. Yeah, for sure. And this is such important, going back to what you're saying as far as like the service level at the beginning uh, information, that is such important information to have when you go back to analyze. And we'll talk about analyzing in a little bit because you want to know, are they familiar with these kinds of games or have they only ever played Uno and Scrabble and Monopoly? Because if that's the case, that might skew their understanding or their ability to kind of figure out the complexity. Also, uh, the playtester form that I use personally, I have a little checkbox that says first time. 
And so if this is the first time they're playing the game, then they check that little box. And that gives me a little bit extra, extra data as far as like, okay, maybe, maybe their score is lower than normal because they just didn't quite figure it out yet. And then maybe it took them a few turns to kind of understand how the combos work or the movement of the combat, whatever it is. But that's going to give you a, another data point. And so I, I think this, that information is wildly important. And then, all right, so switching gears back to what I was saying earlier, what are now some of the questions? So we're at the end of the session. What are some of the questions you would recommend I ask? Right. So, um, so that's what I like to call the what of data gathering. And that is a complicated question. I'll try to break it down into all the different parts uh, more, more easily here. So the, the first thing you need to look at when you're posing a question is what type of answer are they looking to give? So if this is a question of, um, like I said before, the very first question I think you should ask, how was your experience? So you can leave it open-ended like that and maybe have a fill in the blank and then they could say good, bad, excellent. Um, they could put any number of things in there. Maybe what you want to do is you want to say on a scale of one to 10, one being the worst and 10 being the best. So you could do that. Um, so, the, and those two different styles of questions, uh, the first one with the fill in the blank, whatever they want, that's called qualitative data. And the second one with the number response, that's called quantitative data. And that's a very big um, topic in terms of data analytics. A lot of people will um, very specifically come out and tell you, I am a quantitative data analyst. Um, there are people who work very specifically with qualitative data. And um, you know, I think all of the skills that a data analyst has, you should be able to handle either of those. But when you are gathering data for your project, you really need to know what type of question you wanna ask qualitative or quantitative. And then to add a layer to that, you need to ask very specifically questions under certain constraints. So you want to make sure that questions are sort of calibrated to the type of information you want. So if you ask an open-ended question, um, you know, uh, how was your, how was your experience, for example, and that could be a qualitative or quantitative answer, um, that may not be the information you need you may want to say um, something along the lines of, how would you rate this game compared to other games of its type? And that is a more specific question. That's a very good question. You can gather a lot of data, um, a lot of good data, asking questions like that, as opposed to how was your experience? So um, that's not to say that uh, you know any one question may not give you the information you need per se, but you want to be careful in asking specific questions and realize what sort of answers those give. So I always start with the answer. What answer do I want? What types of answers? Um, and, and that sort of forms the framework of how I gather my data just from a single question. So start with the answer, figure out what it is that you want from them and try to make it specific. The more specific, the better. And then you can form your question around that. So your, your answer is going to lock you in on what you need. The question is going to help you get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also important to remember with qualitative data that everyone has biases. And if, if the person won the game, they're a little bit more likely to say they had a good experience. And if they lost by 50 points, they're a little more likely to say they had a bad experience. And so that's going to make them a little bit biased one way or another. That's always something to just kind of keep in mind. I want to ask you a quick question about quantitative data. 
because sure. I've seen lots of people do it different ways as far as like the, the numbering system that they've used. Like I've seen some people say on a scale of one to 10, you know, one being awful and 10 being perfect, you know, what do you rank the theme and the time it took to play and also, and, but I've also seen people use one to seven. I've seen one to five. I've seen one to three. So I've seen lots of different ranges there. And then I personally, I, I, I stopped using the number system. I use a, what's called a Goldilocks system where I'm, I'm looking for just right. So the game length, was it too short or was it too long or was it just right? The, the way the rules explanation, was it too like, Oh, too much. And it was confusing or, or not enough. You didn't know how to play the game or was it just right? So I use that kind of system. What, what's your opinion? Is there like a perfect number? Not necessarily perfect, but anyway, a best practice as far as like the scale one to three, one to five is the Goldilocks a better way to do it. What, what's your opinion? Um, so I just want to uh, compliment you on your Goldilocks system. Cause I think that is a phenomenal uh, system for gathering data. And, um, and I think I'll use that to explain why, because the, the issue um, is that when you have one to five, one to seven, one to 10, whatever your number system is, um, an individual who's responding to your, um, we'll call the survey, uh, they will have their own inherent bias on how they answer questions. And what I mean by that is um, you will have people who are um, a little bit more optimistic than your average responder and, a little, and people who are a little bit more pessimistic than your average responder. And so that's not to say that um, you know, one person's response is that much worse than somebody else's and another person's response is that much better than somebody else's. They just inherently will respond with higher praise than somebody else who maybe had a very similar experience. And um, so that's what I like about your Goldilocks approach because um, you've identified the middle of your data, um, the, the, the data point that uh, sort of divides uh, everything into the upper half and the lower half. And um, even though both of those uh, ends of the spectrum in your case are, uh, I guess you could say negative uh, responses, it, um, it neatly gives you that sort of middle bound and it doesn't allow people to skew your data left or right based on how, um, as I say, optimistic or pessimistic they are in responding to your survey. So I very much like... Um, to do something like what you've done with your Goldilocks approach, where it's either too much or too little, um, and just right is in the middle. That is the that is the simplest approach that I could recommend to somebody who's just starting out their survey uh, for the first time for their play test. Um, if you if I were to tell somebody to do one to ten, for example, I'd then have to not only um, tell them to use one to 10, I then also have to teach them how to identify that bias in individual responders. And that is a, a more complicated um, sort of piece of information. So when I have to break down data, uh, I have to take that into account and it can get a little bit number crunchy. And um, maybe people don't want to have to uh, dive that deep into the data just to get a simple answer. So I'd say the Goldilocks approach, I like it. I, I, I think more people should do it actually. Okay, cool. That's really great to hear. All right, switching switching gears a little bit. In the uh, Google form you submitted to kind of pitch this episode, one of the things you mentioned was metadata. So tell me what exactly is metadata in this context and why is it important? Why do I need it? Anything uh, along those lines? Sure. So um, the best way I can explain metadata to somebody, um, the, the short answer is it's data about data, uh, but that doesn't always translate to people. So I'm going to go with an example. If you're on your computer and you go into your pictures, uh, when you 
um, click on that picture of your wedding or uh, you know your best friend's birthday party, whatever it is. Um, not double click, but that first click, and then you can right click and go to properties. Or maybe you're on a Macintosh. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you how to get there for that one. Um, but that extra information that pops up when you look at the picture file itself, um, so it tells you how, how big it is in, in megabytes, for example. Um, it could tell you uh, resolution. It could tell you all sorts of other pieces of information, when the picture was taken, the last time a file was modified. All of that is considered metadata. So the picture is what you really care about. That's what you want to look at. Um, but all of that extra information off to the side, that's the metadata. And when it comes to playtesting, um, I think sometimes it's, um, it's a little difficult to advocate for metadata with playtesting because we don't, um, we don't need all the metadata that you would normally gather with other sorts of pieces of information, but there are specific pieces of information I would advocate for. So a really big one is going to be the date that your survey was uh, uh, filled out. Um, so that would be, um, you know, hopefully the day that they played it. Now, if it isn't the date they played it, I would want that information on there too. I would want the day that they played the game. And if it's a different day that they filled it out, I would want that information too. And the reason why is because when people, uh, you'll, you'll see this with um, surveys for major uh, companies out there, they will tell you that you only have seven days to fill out the survey. And that's because the longer somebody waits to fill out a survey, the less valuable that information is that they give you because it's more likely to become um, skewed in the sense that it's, it's harder to remember the exact experience. And if they capture that information sooner, it's better. It's, it's going to be more accurate. And um, the, the extremes that that person is feeling are going to be more pronounced. So if they really didn't like it or if they really loved it, um, you're really going to see that the sooner that they fill it out. So I would definitely want to know the day that they play tested the game. I definitely want to know the day that they filled out the survey. Um, you you could put the uh, player's information. Um, so maybe you want to use the survey as a way to gather data for um, a future mailing list, or maybe you want to have a means to be able to reach out to that person in the future. Um, maybe you want to give them a second chance at playtesting. Um, so you might want to capture their name and their email or their phone number. Um, those sorts of pieces of information, those are sort of uh, outside the realm of the data analyst, uh, analysis that we're doing. So I would consider those pieces metadata, but you should absolutely be uh, considering those sort, of, uh, those sort of topics outside of the box of just data analysis and playtesting. So one time I was on the set of Star Trek The Next Generation, and I metadata. <laughs> anyway, dad joke of the day. You're welcome, listeners. <laughs> now you get to have uh, an experience that my kids deal with every day. All right, so moving on from metadata, let's talk about what to do with all of this data. Like now that I've got surveys or I've got you know things in my Excel sheet, where do I go from there? Right, so um, the, the big thing that I can advocate for is uh, putting it all condensed down into some place that is um, safe and easily accessible. So, um, so when I say safe, I mean like if you're going to put it in a digital format, which is what I would absolutely advocate, I would back that information up somewhere secure. So um, if your computer is suddenly fried, uh, power surge in your home and it zaps your computer or whatever happens, I would want that piece of information 
um, tucked away on a USB drive somewhere, um, that would be my go-to, either an external hard drive or a, a USB. USB would be my top choice. Um, but yeah, you want it someplace that's secure, someplace where um, it's not going to get uh, damaged in any sense. So if you have kids running around the house um, and you can't necessarily count on them to not put the USB drive in the fishbowl, then maybe you put that USB drive in your safe. Um, a safe would be a great place to put it. Um, so yeah, you definitely want that information secure. And then you want it in some place that is um, easily accessible. And what I mean by that isn't, you know, oh, you can run and get it in five seconds if somebody needs it. What I mean is um, when you go to pull all of the information, um, you need to be able to get into the information as quickly as possible. So if I have a stack of a thousand sheets, that is going to take me a tremendous amount of time to go through. Um, it'd be so much easier if I had everything down in one file. Um, and I, I keep falling back on the example of Excel spreadsheets, but if you have access to uh, database software, um, you can certainly take that route too. Um, you know, I work with SQL and stuff like that. Very easy to just add entries uh, to a database. So um, I can advocate both of those. But um, I think for uh, your average listener, we might be talking about Excel files and uh, Google Sheets. Those are both great places to put it. Um, and the very most important thing to do with the data as soon as you um, start putting it in there is making sure that you're breaking apart the data into logical chunks as best you can. So, um, so I designed my uh, Excel spreadsheet for a particular play test with a column for every single answer. And if an answer has multiple points of data in it, I will break those apart into separate columns as well. Um, so you definitely want that data as broken apart as possible into coherent um, you know, rows and columns in your Excel or Google Sheets. And, uh, and then you just wanna make sure that everything is consistent across the board. Um, so that becomes kind of the next step which is um, cleaning your data. So once you have everything in your Excel, um, it's the worst feeling in the world when you go to, say for instance, create a chart and the chart information doesn't look very clean. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see uh, data points that are just sitting all the way out on your, your y-axis, uh, which uh, could be an indication of a a null field, maybe you didn't gather information or you forgot to put it in. Um, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong with that. So if you're um, gathering all this information, I like to suggest that you um, you just take home all your, your surveys and you just enter them into your sheet every day and do your best to be consistent. Uh, Excel has a phenomenal tool called data validation, which can help you put controls on the sort of data that you're entering into a field. So if you can't be certain um, that you're going to put the exact same piece of information in over and over and over again, and you might just put something in there that doesn't match. Uh, data validation will take care of that for you, and um, that's uh, that's that's an extra step of learning. But I, I'd say it's definitely worth it if you can pursue that. Um, so that would be uh, everything that I would suggest you do with your data once you got it. You definitely want it safe. You want it easily accessible, and you want it consistent. You want all of your data to look the same all the way across all your fields. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so what what's the magic number or what, what's enough? How, how do I know when I should feel good about the amount of information that I have collected? So you'll see people talking on the internet about p-values and that's something for people who are 
a little bit more well-rounded in statistics. Uh, and so what you want to do is you want to make sure that um, you have enough information to match the sort of confidence that you have about your surveys to be able to relate that to a larger pool of people. So there is a method of figuring that out. And it's a little more complicated than what I can simply explain in a podcast, for example. But uh, I would recommend that you just go on Google. And if you just search, um, for instance, confidence interval, uh, both those words together, um, and then calculator, that'll pop up all sorts of tools. And they all basically do the exact same thing. Um, so basically what you want to do is you want to figure out uh, how many... Um, well, let me take a step back, actually. There's two ways you can go about doing this. Um, you can look at the number of people that you've had play test versus the number of people you intend to reach with your audience. And you can also look at the number of games played versus the number of copies of the game you want to sell. Um, and so those are a couple of different ways. And that's not the only way that you can do it, but those are the big ways um, in my mind that you could uh, potentially go about looking at this. So um, so you need to figure out which one you're concerned with. Um, and I think the right answer, by the way, is both. You want to make sure that you're confident not only about the number of people you're reaching, but also about the um, the number of copies of the game you want to sell. And you want that information for two different things. Um, but once you've figured that part out, then you need to look at what your sample size is. So that's either the number of people that have playtested your game or the number of instances of people playtesting your game more specifically. Um, and, uh, or you could be looking at the number of games played in total. And then you want to consider how many people you think you're going to reach. So if I think that I'm going to potentially print, um, say, 10,000 copies of my game, uh, then maybe I'm going to reach, say, 50,000 people. Um, you know, someone will buy a game, they'll play it with their family and some of their friends. And so you can, you can kind of guess how many people you think you're going to reach, how many copies of the game you're going to sell. Um, and you take those two pieces of information uh, and you put them into the calculator and there's two other pieces of information involved as well. Um, one of them is the confidence level and the other one is the confidence interval, which are a little bit more complicated, but I can kind of break them down in a, uh, an easy to understand way. So confidence level is basically uh, the, the accuracy. How, how accurate do you want this um, sample size's representation of the whole to be? Um, frequently, if you go to these calculators, they'll recommend either 95% or 99%. Um, I think for people that are building games, um, unless you're one of those gigantic companies that sells hundreds of thousands or millions of copies, it's probably best to stick to a 95% confidence level. And then the confidence interval, that's sort of your, your plus or minus. Um, so, you know, you can, you can say, uh, I want to be about 95% correct, give or take 5%. Um, and 5% is a, is a fair confidence interval as well. So um, those are the four pieces of information. And when you plug them into the calculator, um, you'll plug in three. And the other one is what the uh, is what you'll get back. So if you, um, if you, for instance, want to know, um, this is how many people I have surveyed. This is my confidence level, my confidence interval. How many people is that a good representation of? It'll tell you. It'll give you that information. 
Um, if you have your, say, 50,000 people that you've reached and you have a 95% confidence level, a 5% confidence interval, um, and you want to know how many people should play test your game, um, you plug that into a calculator. I have one right in front of me right now. It says the answer is 381 people. Um, and all of this is, uh, it's, it's proven mathematics. So it's not like, um, it's not like this is some sort of hokey machine where you just put things in, you get stuff back and maybe it works. This is math. This is scientific. Um, so you, you get one of these calculators, you can plug all these things in and get your information back. So, um, yeah, you just need to figure out what your confidence level is, your confidence interval. And then either the number of people that you surveyed to figure out how many people it's representative of or how many people you're trying to target to figure out how many people to survey. Um, and that's your answer. Uh, so it depends on the individual what specifically uh, your number of people is that you need to target or number of games played that you need to target. But you figure all that out. You put, go to one of these calculators online. It gives you the information, and that's all you have to do. So if you want to target 50,000 people, you need 381 uh, entries in your sample size. So that could be 381 surveys um, to represent your 50,000 people. And you get all that information together, and you can be fairly confident with a 95% confidence level, give or take 5%, um, that that will be representative of that whole. Nice. And I like how it turns it into just a simple calculation and figuring out, well, how many people do you need to play test the game with? How many surveys do you need to take in? There's your answer. It's not like a gut feeling necessarily like, no, here's the actual data to prove it. All right. So right. switching gears a little bit, let's get into more of the analyzation side of things. Tell me about analyzing all this data that has come in. Right. So uh, data analysis is a... Uh, a bit of a complicated thing to just tell someone how to do. It requires a lot of work, a lot of experience, but um, there are some uh, tricks that data analysts will use that will help them um, gather insights from the data. So um, very big thing in data analytics is data visualization. And if you are using, um, let's say Excel, for example, uh, you can do data visualization in Excel. You can target the cells that you want to look at, and then you can create a chart and you can use a scatter plot and it will show you the trends in your data. Um, and data visualization is phenomenal because um, what it will do for you is it will allow you to simply look in one little space on your screen and using your, your intuition and just your ability to scan the image, you can already build some uh, conclusions based off that data. So if if there's you know something that looks kind of like a, a curved line, um, you can you can sort of look at that and just sort of say, well, this is this is what the data looks like, and and I can from this I can make some sort of uh, jump to say that this is uh, something I need to know about it. Um, it's very complicated uh, to to tell you exactly how I do what I do, but it's it's um, it's very easy to, to make some, some basic uh, analyses of your data. So, um, so as I say, start by creating a chart. Um, plot out all that data. Look at it um, bit by bit. Don't try to put your entire survey, cram it all into one chart. That's going to be overwhelming for the census, and you're not going to get anything out of it. Um, you know, Create a chart that uh, represents a couple points of data, um, 
graphed across a, a 2D screen and off of that sort of, you know, use your intuition, figure out, is there is there some sort of upward trend that you're looking at that maybe um, could indicate that if you just tweak things a little bit this way, um, you know, like, let's let's go with an example here. Let's say um, we're doing your, your Goldilocks uh, method and we're trying to gauge a, um, a player's uh, experience with this game as it pertains to other games in the field. So very specific question, and you're going to have answers that are going to be, um, I'm going to plot them as positive answers if it's um, better than the other games in the area, or I can plot them as negative answers if it's worse than other games in that, uh, that field. Or if it's about the same, it'll be zero. So I can use plus one, minus one, and zero. Once you plot all that data, um, you will see that uh, some sort of a some sort of a line will form, and um, and of course it depends on how you um, you plot it. If you plot it versus uh, the, the the number of uh, surveys or whatever it is, it'll it'll change a little bit. But um, you'll see you'll see some sort of a line form, and you'll kind of get an impression of which way that line skews. Does it skew? more towards it being better than other games in the area? Does it skew more towards, uh, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum where it's not as good as other games um, that have the same sort of mechanics or, or the same uh, basic premise? Um, or does it skew right down the middle, right where, um, you know, it's on level with everything else? You can, you can figure all that out just by looking at it. Um, you know, humans are, are very smart and intuitive uh, creatures, and, and so we can, we can figure things out just by looking at them. Um, so I, I wouldn't, uh, in any way discount the possibility that somebody's going to be able to just put things on a chart and be able to say, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what this means. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the, uh, one of the key tricks of data analysis that I can recommend. Um, now if you're a little bit more knowledgeable in Excel and you can do things like, um, add trend lines to it, that's phenomenal. Go ahead and do that. Um, you know, you can look at, um, uh, you know, whether or not that, that, uh, that trend line closely matches the uh, the data that you're seeing. Um, if that data is kind of uh, spread out and it's it's more like a cloud of data than it is a, a line of data, um, you know that can that can give you some um, some information too. Um, not to say that clouds of data are desirable. That's that's kind of the opposite direction. But um, you know it can it can tell you that you're not looking in the right place. Um, you know if there just isn't a trend, you you might want to look at something else. Um, so. You know, maybe that question versus a different question you asked. Um, so, I should really talk about how you plot your data because um, you can compare two different things to give yourself a two D graph, and that can change things dramatically. You can plot the the user experience versus the user uh, knowledge. Um, you know, how knowledgeable is this user in uh, games or games of this type versus um, the user experience? And that can give you some really great feedback. If if the line um, goes kind of like a, a you know a diagonal straight out of the origin, um, then that would tell you that you know on the on the far end of the spectrum there you've got players who had a really great experience um, on one axis, and then um, plot that to your data. Those are also players who are very knowledgeable in games, and so maybe you know that tells you right there that um, you know the data you gathered is more indicative of player knowledge than is a player experience. 
Um, so that's something that's something really I think will will help give you a lot of insight is just cycling through, you know, comparing your answers on one thing to your answers on another thing and seeing if there's some sort of really strong trend. Um, that can give you uh, really great insights into your data. Um, and uh, you know, another thing that you can do too is you can take all of that data and um, you can um, you can break it down into more comprehensive chunks. So, you know, maybe you can group people by a certain variety. So like take all your players that had a really bad experience and then just develop charts that take that section of your data and compare different questions that you asked on that. Because then maybe what you're going to do is you're going to isolate, okay, they had a bad experience. Why did they have a bad experience? And maybe there'll be a specific question where you ask something about, um, you know, this particular mechanic. Did it benefit the game? Did it detract from the game? Um, or was it, um, you know, not, did it not have an impact on the game? And maybe that question will show very high results in your data for people who had a bad experience. And then that could be an indication that this is the thing that's wrong with the game that's, that's making people not like it. And um, that's really what you want to do. You want to you wanna try to look at things um, that you got from your data and compare it to other bits of data and see if you can identify trends. That's, that's the heart of what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about when data has maybe been around for a while or been around long enough. How do you know when to discard it? How do you know when to kind of retire a data set or, or maybe realize that it's just not necessary at this point? How do you know? Um, sure. So one of the things to consider is whether you've made any changes to your game. Obviously, if you've made changes to the game, all the data you gathered before that might not be representative of uh, the new version of your game. If you decided to ditch um, certain set of dice mechanics in favor of something else, then uh, then all your data that you gathered um, where the game had the dice mechanics in it uh, no longer represents what those people may feel about the new version of the game. Um, and it's not to say just throw out the questions about the dice in this case. It's the whole survey might be invalid. Um, so absolutely, if you're changing your game, um, you definitely need to um, sort of, uh, I like to say, archive the old data. Um, so maybe you want to come back to it one day. You, you switch, you've changed the game. You've changed some of the mechanics. You're going through it, and um, you, know, you, you find that there, your feedback isn't as good as it used to be. Well, then maybe you want to go back to the old model, and um, then that, that archive data is still good. Um, so if, you, if you've reached a point with something where you're definitely certain that you have a better version of your game than a previous version, maybe that's the point where you delete all of that survey data. Um, but something else to remember too is whenever you play test your game, um, the people at your table that are your play testers, they're not the only ones that are changing. You are. Uh, you're getting better at explaining your game. You're figuring out how better to describe aspects of your game to get people going um, and, and points where maybe people are getting bogged down in something and by you know just sheer experience with it, you've learned a better way to address that issue. Um, so you know, you're changing too. Um, and, and your playtest experiences are going to be impacted by that. So it's worth considering also the age of the data. Um, every time I do data analytics, I am looking at data age to consider whether or not that data is still valid. 
And if it's not, then I don't, I don't look at it anymore. So if the, the data that you have is, is reached a certain age, you should definitely retire it um, because you're changing and the way that you're doing things is changing. And if you change your survey, another example of, of how things are changing too. But, uh, you know, then you get into a question of how old is too old? Well, you know, how, how many play tests have you actually done? Are you doing 50 play tests a year? Are you doing, you know, 50 play, play tests every other year? How's that working out for you? Because you're, you're still trying to reach that target number. Um, the number of your sample set that you need in order to be truly confident about what that says about the bigger population of people you intend to reach. So if you're still working towards that number, you may want to hang on to all that old data until you've reached it. Um, but, you know, like I said, you still have to consider, you know, you're changing the way you present your product is changing. Um, you know, the, the places that you go to, to gather your data, that's changing. The people that you're meeting, that's changing too. Everything is changing. So eventually stuff does need to get moved along because it's getting aged out of the system. You're finding new, better, um, whatever it is, things are improving for you because you've been doing this for so long. Um, so you definitely just want to look at how old it is and you know how badly do you need that data. If you are if you're doing, you know, five play tests a week, that's phenomenal. That's that's amazing. Maybe you don't need data older than a year. Um, and like I said, you can, you can archive data first. That's just taking data, putting it someplace else, um, so that you don't look at it unless you really want to go back to it. Um, you can, you can always archive data and that is, um, that's kind of your safety net if you're not sure whether or not to get rid of it yet. Uh, but like I said, there's, there's just certain criteria where, you know, if you've, if you change the game and you're, you're definitely certain that. An older version of the game is obsolete. It's no good. The user experience was worse than another version you already have. Then maybe that's the stuff you delete. Um, so definitely look at the age, look at how things have changed and use that to infer how badly you need to keep that old information. Yeah, for sure. Would you also recommend retiring or, or discarding data from maybe a play test where the testers just played the game completely incorrectly? Right, so maybe it's a blind play test, and and you you realize through the survey or, or through the questions or whatever that like they totally missed how to play the game, or maybe it's from a play tester that just hates this type of game. Like they love Euro games, and you've got to take that exploding kittens kind of game, and they just loathe it. And they they really shouldn't have been playing. Like it's not for them; they're not the target audience. Would you also recommend discarding that data or not? Uh, yeah, so that is um, that's belongs to a group of data called outliers. Um, there's other words for it as well, um, but those are the the sort of pieces of data that that take away from the analysis. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily archive or delete that data um, unless you know for a fact that there's something completely invalid about it. Like for example, like you said, uh, they played the game completely wrong. There was maybe a, a, a full page rules that they completely ignored that actually completely alters the way that the game is supposed to be played. Um, yeah, I would, I would look at it once. I would see if, if somehow um, there's something salvageable from it. Like maybe the, the user experience was phenomenal. Then maybe you want to, you want to keep that around and, and examine, you know, what it is. But um, 
you're you're starting to enter the territory of needing to create a whole new sample set for this whole new style of gameplay. And is it even worth it at this point? Is this what you really intended? And the answer is probably no. Um, but yeah, your, your outliers, you definitely need to, um, you need to have a way to sort of disregard them, not archive them, not delete them, but disregard. So um, when I was talking about plotting scatter plots in Excel before, you can definitely target what data you want to put into there. And maybe you have to do some some work shifting around your data in, in what rows or columns, or, um, or maybe even start a whole new sheet uh, within your workbook that only has data of a certain type. That's the point where you are filtering your data, which is a whole part of um, data cleaning. And you, you really should take those outliers out. Like I can tell you from, um, this is not related to uh, playtesting, but I've had an example where um, I was looking for some very specific information. I was comparing um, carbon, uh, carbon emissions across the world uh, versus the happiness index of countries across the world. And I, I was actually looking for outliers. I was looking for countries that, um, that were just sort of out of the norm, you know, very happy despite all of their carbon emissions. And um, I had some ridiculous outliers that were making the data unreadable. Um, all of my data looked like a, a vertical line all the way to the left. And then I had these two outliers all the way to the right. And um, I don't want to make it sound like these countries are bad or anything, but there were, there were two countries that... Um, they had some very, very strong data and it just made it impossible to look at the rest of it and figure out, you know, what was going on. So I just, I took them out of my data set, honed in on the rest of it. And I had a beautiful graph. I was able to make all sorts of, um, you know, inferences from, from what was going on. And um, yeah, you, you definitely need to look for the outliers. So if you, if you see that something is just, it's extreme and it's very different than everything else you're seeing, that's an outlier and it really might not help you um, look at how to play the game better or, or how to change your game. Um, so it's worth keeping, but not considering when you do your analysis. Um, or like I said, uh, if you're looking for outliers, if you really want to see, you know, this person had a very different experience, had a very different um, response to this question compared to everybody else. I want to figure out, you know, what it is about that person that makes them special. That's, that's fine too. That's an analysis where you're looking at outliers. Um, if that's not what you're doing, disregard. Yeah, that makes, makes a ton of sense. Well, Robert, this has been excellent. As far as closing thoughts, what would be your advice, your encouragement to maybe some designers out there who are also aspiring data analysts? What would you tell them? Uh, I think that um, my, my core piece of advice is always gather more data. Um, it, it never hurts to just ask for one more, um, ask one more question, ask one more person, um, do one more play test. Uh, more data is always a good thing. So that would be my words of encouragement. Always try and get more data. Yeah, for sure. Well, cool, man. Well, tell people where they can maybe find you online or if you have any projects or games that you're working on, you want people to know a little more about. Uh, yeah, so my online footprint is pretty small, but um, you can uh, definitely in the future, I will be uh, releasing a, uh, a page for my game that'll be coming up. It's called The Fuhrer Wears Airsats. And uh, that is a deck builder that uh, I think I can say it makes fun of Hitler. 
Yeah, so you're telling me a little bit about this game before we hit record. So tell people more, because this is a like really creative out there theme. Tell people what that game is about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you're if you're at all familiar with um, Adolf Hitler before his rise to power, uh, he was really trying to be an artist, and he actually kept producing artwork for a very long time. Um, there's uh, there's even um, references to his artwork in modern TV shows like uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They they have a whole joke about um, about Adolf Hitler's art, and uh, so, so my game um, supposes an alternate timeline where Adolf Hitler tried to become an artist and he was successful. And, um, you know, if you're going to be an artist and uh, you're, you're going to be successful, either you're going to become like a Pablo Picasso where you just churn out art and it sells for millions. Um, that's probably not the way to build a career because most of those guys, their artwork isn't valued until after they're deceased. Um, so for a lot of artists, they get into... Uh, art for the corporate world. And in this version of events, uh, Adolf Hitler gets into uh, a fashion magazine and he runs a, uh, an art department for a fashion magazine. Well, there you go. You know, it would just be one in the, the long line of Hitler becoming interesting, insert job here, title games, right? So, you know, <laughs> you're just adding to the pile. It's just like another Another trading in the Mediterranean game, another game about Hitler doing weird things. And so <laughs> I think this is super interesting, super creative, and I look forward to maybe hearing or seeing more about it. Uh, I think the world could use more things that make fun of Hitler. I think there, you know, there's no shortage of that, and, and uh, that's okay. I think you know, more of that kind of thing is, is perfectly fine to uh, dishonor his memory. I don't know what, whatever the phrase would be, but uh, he has definitely earned being made fun of in so many ways. But anyway... Yeah. Uh, Robert, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with uh, your Making Fun of Hitler game and everything else you got going on right now. All right. Thank you so much, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?